I'd like you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2 again this morning, Colossians 2, and as you're turning there, um, I want to remind you of kind of where we are, because uh, these are not messages that you can take sort of a la carte off the tray and not pay attention to the rest of what's there. Um, I told you last week it would be a series because I can't say everything that needs to be said in, in, one, in one lesson. It's too much. And that couldn't be more true of this morning because if you only hear this morning, you could be in trouble. <laughs> and if you only hear this morning and you don't come back, uh, well, you're going to miss some very, very important stuff. But um, last week, as we were looking at the middle of chapter 2, we were focusing on those things that are true of us in Jesus Christ. And you recall that I told you last week that all spiritual development follows kind of a sequence. Um, And everything that you get in the Christian life will always come by this sequence. You will start by hearing a message. The second step is you have to believe that the message you've heard is true. There has to be the truth proclaimed, and you have to believe that it's the truth. And then you must accept it as true for you. In other words, you must embrace it for yourself and commit to it. That's the faith part. And we reminded you last week how even the demons believe and tremble. So hearing the message and acknowledging the truthfulness of it is not very effective. Because all the demons of hell go that far, and there's no transformation, nor will there ever be. There has to be that third step that says, I accept this for myself. And if we're going to grow in Christ, and truly grow up in Him and become mature, we have to hear truth, we have to believe that it's true, and then we have to commit ourselves to it to allow the Holy Spirit to develop it in our lives. Now, last week we looked at things that were true of us because of the cross of Jesus Christ. And I summarized those in the introduction this morning. They're actually directly from point four of last week's study guide that Christ's death on the cross destroyed the power of the flesh. Now, it's important that we believe that and receive it by faith, even though. What you feel may be contrary to this reality. Uh, Friends, you and I both know that the world, the flesh, and the devil are always clamoring to gain the upper hand in our lives. And part of the deception is that even though we've trusted Jesus Christ, we're really not any different. You know, that's part of the lie of the enemy that comes to us and These things cry out to us. The world, the flesh, and the devil have their appeal and their pull. And the effort is to convince us that we really don't have any victory in Christ. He's forgiven us. We know that. But there's nothing really there to enable us to resist the downward pull. And the scripture says, Not just in Colossians, but it's repeated many times in the New Testament. The scripture says that the power of the flesh was destroyed, rendered ineffective through the cross. It may pull at me, but it cannot conquer me. It can't overcome me. It cannot force me into the old patterns. It has lost its strength to do that. We are delivered from its power. Secondly, in the resurrection, we were made alive in Jesus Christ. There really is a transformation that has occurred. I've come to life in Christ. Paul says in this chapter that we were complete in him, meaning that we have been regenerated, we've been reborn, our, our own spirit has come to life, and we have been indwelt by the Spirit of God. So... This is true of us. There is a transformation that has occurred. Thirdly, all of the charges against us have been nailed to the cross. And if there's one truth that would transform the majority of believers, 
in their daily experience of enjoying God, it would be this one, if, if we could just truly believe it by faith. Because what do you struggle with? With guilt. You have memories of the past. You have things that, that, that remind you of times that you failed. I can't tell you how many Christians I've talked to over the years that struggle with guilt. They struggle with failure. They struggle with ongoing failure. They feel condemned by God. They feel like God is unhappy with them and angry with them still. They're struggling in their relationship. And they feel that that they're not pleasing to God and they want to give up. And, And at times they feel hopeless and yet their hope is in Christ and they're in this seesaw that goes back and forth of struggle. If they could only believe that Christ has taken all of the guilt of sin and all of their sin history and all of their sin future, quite frankly, and nailed it to the cross. And it's done. God is not holding it against us. His anger has been spent on Jesus on the cross as the propitiation for our sin. It's all been dealt with. That's incredibly liberating. I can come into a relationship with God and not be afraid of Him. And let me tell you, if you come into God with your sins, you better be afraid of Him. There's good reason to be afraid. But He has expressed His love for us in Christ on the cross and for those who have trusted Him, you and and I this morning. There is release from all of that. And this is is a done deal. This was accomplished at, at Calvary. And then finally, the powers of darkness have utterly and completely and thoroughly been defeated. They've been exposed. They've been destroyed. They've been defeated. They have no power against us. And all you have to do is point to the cross and to the blood, and the demons of hell are silenced because they have been defeated. He has triumphed over them through the cross. Now, those realities that I presented last week are part of the foundation of truth that in order to live successfully as a Christian, you must believe for yourself and trust by faith. And if you're struggling with that this morning, I encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit of God to drive the truth home to your heart. He is the one that gives illumination. He is the one that enables belief to occur Cry out to God in the power of the Holy Spirit and ask Him to bring these truths home to your heart that you can rest upon them because they are true truth and you need to accept them as such. Now this morning, I want to kind of talk about the negative side of this because this is where the Colossians were getting into trouble with false teachers and what the false teachers were saying. And one of the things that is so uh, deceptive here and clever is that everything that they were saying made good sense. It sounded perfectly reasonable. I want you to look right at the end of the chapter, verse 23, just for the support of that statement. As Paul concludes his whole summary of chapter 2, talking about the false teachers, he says, These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body. They have the appearance of wisdom. In other words, we're not, as I mentioned before, we're not going to be so terribly gullible that somebody coming along teaching something that's obviously ridiculous is going to have an appeal. What's going to have an appeal is if somebody comes along and says, you want, you want to follow Christ? You want to be spiritual? Do you want to grow up in Christ and be mature? Here's the method. I have ten principles to guarantee your spiritual development. I can give you a method that will help you become spiritually mature. I have a program that if you follow it, you will become a successful Christian. That's that's the one that's going to get us. That's where the pitfalls lie. Because it sounds reasonable and it looks wise. 
And so Paul says that's the characteristic of these false teachers, and that's their danger. What they're promoting sounds good. Let's look at it before we get into the analysis of it. Verse 8, and then uh, skipping over the paragraph that we considered last week, jumping to verse 16. Colossians 2, 8. See to it that no one carries you away, takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. Now, there's some insight right there into what was going on. The thing that was likely to take them away captive was the tradition of men and the elementary principles of the world rather than Christ. Verse 16, Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance, the reality, belongs to Christ. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions that he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with the using, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Now, the first thing that comes to mind from verse 18, or from verse 8, and then uh, later on from verse 20, if you have died with Christ, the elementary principles of the world. What are the elementary principles of the world? What is Paul talking about that the, the false or teacher to lead them astray. Well, he mentions some things very specifically. He talks about food and dietary laws and he talks about new moons and Sabbath days and festivals. In other words, these were all the kinds of things that were associated with the law in the Old Testament. The regulations, the the uh, worship regulations, all the things that had to do with Old Testament law. In other words, these teachers were in essence saying, in order to be a, 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 a person, you need with a whole new with a whole new direction. Also, in addition to the law, were rules and added for the purpose of attaining spirituality died with Christ to elementary as if you were in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not taste do not handle not touch which all refer to things destined to perish with the using then according to the traditions of men um Which one? Verse 8. Yes, thank you. The traditions of men. there. And they add it to what's there because they even better to be sure to stay holy. Teachers in the first... Let's talk about false teachers in the 21st century. Let's talk about people add to even the rules that are in the Bible in order to improve our likelihood of success. I'm not speaking in the college I went to. It was a Christian college. It was designed to prepare people for missionary service or, or pastoral ministry or, or ministry within the church. Now, 
it has all kinds of majors, and you can do a lot of different things besides those. But, but it, was, it was an interesting place, and it had some interesting rules. And uh, uh, some of the things that it added to um, the basic scripture were rules relative to drinking and rules relative to relationships between young men and young women. In fact, many of the Christian colleges of that era had what they called the six-inch rule. Um, those of you who didn't have the benefit of a Christian education uh, in a college, you, you missed out on the six-inch rule, probably. But uh, after all, that was the 70s, and the sexual revolution was just at its peak, so vastly different things were happening at state universities. But um, the idea was that you could not get closer to a member of the opposite sex than six inches. You couldn't hold hands. You couldn't touch members of the opposite sex. There were no holy hugs. Uh, it was that kind of an environment. And uh, so, woe be unto you if you should fall in love while you were in classes there because you couldn't begin to show any kind of expression of that affection. Well, it had an interesting outcome, all of that did. My last year of school... Uh, I was trying to really pack in some hours to finish up my degree, and it was easier for me to work nights, so I joined the campus security force, which was intended to uh, protect the campus from outside intruders who might come onto our 1,100 acres after, uh, you know, after closing hours. But in fact, um, it involved patrolling the grounds, and lo and behold, what did you discover at midnight? You discovered couples in the bushes. They couldn't hold hands during the day, so they had crawled out their dorm rooms at, the, at night, usually the windows, and were hiding in the bushes. And I want to ask you, very practically speaking, what do you think is better, letting them hold hands in daylight or driving them into the bushes at midnight? Well, that distinctively had another effect. Another thing that I discovered one night on patrol was a case of beer tied to a rope hidden in the stream to keep it cool. I staked out that case of beer only to discover students coming to drink it at midnight. And I thought, oh my goodness, you know, we're going to the dogs here. But actually, what was happening was by adding the rules and regulations we were simply compounding the problem instead of solving any problem. Churches do this. When I first came into the Christian and Missionary Alliance many years ago and filled out that first application for ministry, as a licensed credentialed worker, I was required to sign a statement on my application form, which has changed over the years. But in those early days, uh, I had to basically attest that I did not use alcohol, I did not use tobacco, I did not use illegal drugs, um, I guess the legal ones were okay, I did not attend dances, I did not regularly go to the theater. I think they put regularly in there because um, the occasional Billy Graham film would come to town and be shown in local theaters, so I suppose that was a permitted exception. Well, over the years, a number of those things have dropped away, and the last vestige of that rather legalistic statement has finally uh, gone away, and that is the prohibition against alcohol, although they have tried to revise it in such a way as to make it more uh, conducive to holiness and less conducive to legalism, and they've only served in making a mess out of it. But uh, the net effect is uh, it is no longer a disciplinary offense for official workers. In other words, if, if a pastor is caught having a drink today, he's not going to have his license removed. Ten years ago, five years ago, a pastor who had a drink could have his license removed and removed from his church and thrown out of ministry in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And so that has uh, finally changed. And I, for one, am very, very glad to see all of those legalistic regulations and requirements taken off the books. 
because these are the traditions of men. And the holiness movement has always had the trappings of external rules and regulations added to the Scriptures. As if the Bible weren't enough, we're going to add to it and make it even more stringent so that you'll be even more holy. Those are what the elementary principles are. Not only the Old Testament law, but all the additions that people make to improve it and make it more specific. How do they appear? They look like logical and beneficial means to live well. In other words, if you just do this stuff, you'll be godly. It's not only the negative stuff, it's the positive stuff. We have a whole plan for your spiritual development. We can tell you how many verses in the Bible to read every day. We can tell you how to pray. We can give you a formula. Let's do acts praying, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. We can give you a plan for everything. We can show you how to do it so that you will be godly. And it looks very good. It seems like a good plan. The problem is, Paul tells us in verse 23, and don't miss the, the profound standalone statement that he is making here. These things have no value against fleshly indulgence. Did you hear that? They have no value. He didn't say they have minimal value. He didn't say they can be helpful in some respects, but they're not the whole story. He said all of these things have zero value in fleshly indulgence. They will not help you be more godly, nor will they help you be less sinful. They have no value against fleshly indulgence. Where do they come from? Well, we've already talked about it. They derive from the law and extrapolations of the law, and focus on performance to external rules and requirements. Secondly, they're elementary. Turn to Galatians chapter 3 with me just for a moment. Galatians chapter 3. This is an important passage on the law as as, uh, explained in the New Testament. And in verse 23 of Galatians 3, Paul says this, Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor, our pedagogue, to lead us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a pedagogue, a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. What was the law? Actually, I was reading quite an extensive uh, uh, discussion on this verse by Douglas Moo yesterday, um, a New Testament scholar that I have a lot of respect for. And he was getting into this and he said, we tend to look at pedagogue as a teacher, that the law was a teacher. And in fact, the New American Standard Version here translates it as tutor. But really, it was more of a babysitter. It was less of a teacher than it was a babysitter. The purpose of the law was basically to just keep the Jews corralled, to keep them under check, to keep them in a fence, 
as a unique and special people through whom the revelation of God could come, preparing the way for Jesus Christ. And all the law and all of the requirements and all the dietary restrictions and everything that had to do with it were intended to isolate the Jews from all other people groups to give them a unique, a unique identity through which the Messiah would come, who would be the deliverer. And notice what Paul says in Galatians when he says, but now that faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor. The elementary principles of the law are just that. They're elementary. And when you look at our educational system, what do we describe education before middle school? Elementary. Elementary, the very root of the word, means the alphabet, letter by letter. It means to learn the fundamentals, to get to learn the very beginnings. These elementary principles do not apply in the realm of spiritual maturity with grown-ups in Christ. They were only there to hold the Jewish nation in check with an identity until Christ would come and bring the fullness of God in human form and make it available to us through his death and resurrection. Finally, these methods are of the world. When you describe Christianity in terms of a philosophy and principles, a program or a methodology, you are not doing anything any different from the world system. I got here a little early this morning, had occasion to meet someone that I've known for quite a number of years, and uh, have known that this individual has had quite a problem with alcohol. And uh, I knew that it was causing some pretty significant damage in their lives. He drove in, just uh, saw me pull up, drove in the parking lot just to say hi, and said, uh, by the way, I've been in AA for the last couple of years, and I'm on my way to a meeting. And he said, it's made all the difference in the world in my life. He says, I, I've stopped drinking, and I'm, I'm getting my life cleaned up. And a part of me rejoiced to hear that, because there's no question that eliminating alcohol in this individual's life was a tremendous step in the right direction in terms of his health. But on the other side of the coin, I felt kind of sad because he is finding that by going to frequent meetings and following the principles and the rules of the 12-step program and having a mentor and doing all the requirements, that he is improving his life. And there is a danger that he will miss Jesus. The world can put band-aids on problems and patch areas that have become broken or give self-help groups that can uh, help you lose weight or help you stop drinking or help you um, quit gambling or uh, develop more assertiveness. There's all kinds of things out there to improve you. And when you reduce Christianity to another self-help focus, all you have done is add one more club to the world's system. It comes from the flesh, and it doesn't go anywhere positive in the long run. It looks good on the surface. It does not address the fundamental problem, nor does it give the absolute answer, which is found in Jesus Christ. 
So what is the problem with the law? That's what these elementary principles are. What is the problem? It's quite amazing in this passage that Paul states unequivocally that religious rituals, rules, and practices based on the law and on traditions are absolutely worthless as a means of attaining spiritual development and conquering the sin problem. I've already stated that in several ways, but I want you to look at letter B under number two. What Paul is writing to the Colossians at the end of chapter two is not written theologically with regard to salvation. Look back at Galatians. Uh, Keep your finger there in Galatians 3. It is not written theologically with regard to salvation, justification on the basis of faith. It is written practically with regard to daily sanctification. What do I mean by that? Here is a common Christian line. You have broken the law. You have sinned. You need to come to Jesus. He will forgive your sin and justify you. By faith, in the finished work of Christ, you can be justified before a holy God as if you had never sinned. And and every true Christian believes that. Every true Christian believes that. The problem is the next statement. Now that you're saved, you need to live for Christ and get it right. Now that you've been saved, you can do better. Listen to what Paul says in the first part of Galatians 3, the first verse. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or hearing with faith? That's what we talked about last week. How did you get the Holy Spirit in your life? By trusting Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross. When you did that, you were born again. You were regenerated. The Holy Spirit came to live in you. And that's a done deal. If you know Jesus Christ, that's reality. That's what has happened. Now Paul says this. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Friends, when someone says to you, here's the program you need to follow, they're trying to perfect you by the flesh, by your own effort. Here's the system. Here are the ten principles that will make you mature in Christ. Follow these principles. Okay, I want to be mature. And Paul says, having begun by the Spirit, are you going to go back to trying to keep the law? You couldn't do it then. You can't do it now. You don't have the power to keep the law. In yourself, it doesn't exist. When Paul said, these things have no value against fleshly indulgence, he wasn't talking to unbelievers. He was talking to Christians. The law will not help you. It won't work for you. Not now, not then. It's of no value. So, this is not written with regard to salvation. These statements in chapter 2 at the end are written with regard to Christian living. If you make up rules, don't touch that, don't taste that, don't handle that, don't drink that, don't eat that. Keep this Sabbath, keep that festival. You've got to do these things to be a good Christian. Paul says it doesn't work. And if you're caught up in that, you're going to fail miserably. 
What this means in practical terms is this. And I had some very wide eyes when I read this statement in the first hour. No amount of effort to live the Christian life by reading the Bible in order to obey its requirements and life principles will succeed. How many times have you heard in one way or another, now that you're a Christian, I want you to get into this book, I want you to start reading it, I want you to obey everything you find here. Do you know how hard that is? Well, if you've tried it, you do. And by the way, the scripture says, James reminds us, that everyone who does not live by everything written in the law, who does not continue to live by everything written in the law, and continue to do them is cursed. So when you start out on that program, when you start reading in Genesis, you can't forget anything. You can't work on one thing today and one thing. To, you've got to remember it all. So every time you meet a new rule, just write it down and keep a list. You've got to keep them all. If you're going to do it this way, you've got to keep them all. So keep the rules. be a good idea to memorize the Pentateuch as a starting point. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You memorize the whole thing. And then go to the Gospels, because you get all the teachings of Christ. And then the letters of Paul. If you can memorize all of that, and keep it in your head all the time, you can live every day of your life saying, okay, let's see, I'm in this situation, what rule applies here? Oh yes, Leviticus 3.15 goes in this situation. I got it. Now I'm going to try to do that. See what Paul's saying? No amount of effort to live the Christian life by reading the Bible in order to obey its requirements and life principles will succeed, even though you may be a sincere believer. No program of spiritual disciplines, no amount of self-denial, no persistent religious practice will make you more godly or less sinful. Doesn't matter what you pick. You can pick the Navigators, you can pick Campus Crusade, you can pick InterVarsity, you can pick something from James Kennedy, you can pick principles from Charles Stanley, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what rules you choose, it doesn't matter what program you adopt, it doesn't matter what methods you employ, no amount of self-effort to follow Christ through a program, system, method, or rule, disciplines, or whatever, will make you more godly or less sinful. Okay, so what is the purpose of the law then? What is the purpose of the law? And by the way, next week I'm going to tell you um, how some of those things can be used by the Holy Spirit but not in the way that they're frequently presented. What is the role of the law in the life of the believer? Well, first of all, it reflects the character of God. You've heard this many times. You know this. God's character is reflected in the Scriptures. The Ten Commandments, for one, reflect His character. The reason he told the Israelites not to lie is because he's not a liar. And if you're going to be my people, you need to act like I act. In one way or another, all of the scripture reflects the character of God. And so if you want to know what he is like, you will find it here. And when you read the commandments, either to do or not to do something you are actually reading what God behaves like. You're reading His character. God acts this way. Secondly, it serves as an objective standard of what Christ-like character looks like. <clears throat> when we read the Scriptures, the oughts and the noughts, we discover the kind of life the Holy Spirit desires to live through us. When the Scripture says, for example... 
Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. What we learn from that is when the Holy Spirit is reigning in your life, he controls your mouth like this. The words that you speak are words that are seasoned with grace, that are appropriately fitting for the moment. In whatever language or vernacular or culture you live in, the Holy Spirit will communicate through you words to others that build them up, that give them grace, that encourage and point them toward God. And you will not be found speaking words that are unwholesome and inappropriate when the Holy Spirit is in control. That's the way you read that. Oh, this is how God acts. And a sneak preview of next week's message is when you read it and you don't act like that, the solution is not to say, okay, I've got to try harder to guard my tongue. The solution is to say, I need to live more closely to Jesus. I need to walk more, more persistently with him. I need, to, I need to draw near to him. When I, when I am walking next to Jesus, that's what comes out. You know, and if you come under conviction, the conviction should be, Lord, I have departed from you in this respect. Not, oh God, I'm, I've got a terrible mouth. I want my mouth to be better, so I'm going to try harder. It won't work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a list of ten words I'm never going to say. Oh, yeah? Now guess what you're thinking about. They're more in your brain now than they were before. Because you're focusing on not using them. That doesn't work. It only makes it worse. I'm getting ahead of myself. Secondly, when... We need direction or have a sense of guidance by the Holy Spirit. The scriptures serve as a witness or a check in discerning our spiritual impressions. Some people through the years have told me they've been led to do things that I know God didn't lead them to do. And I knew that because they were contrary to this book. You know, if you have a leading from God and it violates something here, it didn't come from God. A proper use of the scriptures as you're, as you're reading this to, to get close to God because you love him is when you discover that your impressions, some strange notion you have, you read a verse and it's like, well, this is contrary to what I'm feeling. Well, then what you're feeling is wrong because this is the standard. The Holy Spirit will never lead you in a way that is contradictory to this. You know this. But how many people connect with that when they feel so strongly about something? Well, the Holy Spirit is always going to speak consistently with himself. However, there are some things that we need to recognize about the law as we conclude. And please come back next week. It's Pentecost Sunday. Hint, hint. We're going to talk about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and how he works in this process. But remember, however, the law in either testament, old or new, the law has no power to make us godly as a standalone program. It cannot make us godly. All it can do is point out our sin. That's all it can ever do, is simply point out our sin. Secondly, we are in no way under its dominion or authority. We have been freed from law. We are under Christ. I'm going to explain that more fully also next week, but we are under Christ, not under law. It's important that we recognize that we have been removed from the realm of law. We're no longer in the babysitter's custody. We are walking with Jesus Christ. 
There's a huge difference. Efforts to keep the law out of sheer determined obedience will, A, result in failure. You've heard me preach messages on this, some of you in the past, if you're new and haven't, brief recap. Efforts to keep the law will always result in one of three things. You'll either become a Pharisee because you're kind of hardwired to like rules. Okay? Some, some people are just like that. That's not a criticism. It takes all kinds. There's all kinds of people in the world. They're all wired differently. And some people just, just are drawn to systems and organizations and lines and, and, and columns. And, you know, they, they, they're just good at that. They like that. And all you have to do is give them a new set of rules, and it's like, wow, they're in high cotton. You know, this is fantastic. I have some more rules to keep. You know, they love it. The problem is that on the surface of things, while it may look good, Jesus said of the Pharisees, who were hardwired that way, he said of the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside. And in those days, they would go paint the tombs white, you know, dress them up, make them look nice. Springtime comes, clip the grass, put some flowers out, paint the, paint the rock white, make it look pretty. But he said, on the inside, you're rotting flesh. That's a pretty harsh statement. And he followed that one up by saying, you know what, you search the world over to make a single convert. And when you finally get your, your teeth into them and you get them one, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves are. Whoa. So if you're doing good, if you're doing well at the legalism game, you're in real trouble because you don't know how bad you are. If you think you're being successful at the rules game, pride and arrogance are, are your hallmarks. If you don't do well at rules, there's two other possibilities. Either despair, because you know you're failing. You've got enough integrity to recognize, I'm not performing well here. But you've got enough introspection and enough loss of self-esteem that you feel guilty before God all the time. And you feel like, I'm never measuring up. How many of you in this room this morning live there? Don't raise your hand. Just recognize it how many of you live in this place where you feel condemned all the time first of all you have not believed that the decrees against you have been nailed to the cross secondly under the law you are struggling and failing and your propensity is to withdraw into depression there are churches filled with sad christians that no lost person would ever want to be like who wants to be like somebody who's miserable all the time? What kind of life is that? Or, <laughs> you try it for a while and you realize how futile the effort is and you've got enough spunk and gumption and ambition that you say, I'm not doing this anymore. To heck with the rules. I'm going whole hog. I'm going to do as I please. This doesn't work. And if you want to keep your foot in the door of Christianity, you're saying, I'm just going to count on the fact that the blood's going to cover me while I live life to the hilt. And then everybody sees that and says, well, they're no different than I am. Why do I want to be like that? I don't have to bother with the religious aspect. Many people just reject church outright. It also actually fuels the fires of rebellion and feeds the flesh. <laughs> this, is, this is the sad thing about the law. It makes sin exceedingly sinful. And it calls forth the rebellious nature. You don't have to go far to figure that out. All you have to do is say to a kid, don't do that. You know, and they're about 14 months old when they look at you like, ha, I'm doing what I want. And parenting begins in earnest. 
it calls out rebellion. The thou shalt nots and the you betters simply call something up inside of us that says, oh, no, I won't. Oh, yes, I will. I'm going to do what I want to do. That's the sin nature taking over. You try to live by the law, the sin nature is just going to be in front of your face all the time. It leads us further from God rather than closer. And at the very best, it ends in dead orthodoxy. Jesus had this problem with the Ephesian church in the book of Revelation. He said, you've got all your doctrine right. You've got all your ducks in a row. You look real good on the outside. But he said, you know what? You're dead. You have no passion. You don't love me anymore. You need to return to your first love. You need to find your passion again. We have churches filled with passionless people who have become wearied with well-doing. They've lost sight of Christ. They're focused on performance. They're battling the world. They're losing the battle. And they're living miserable lives. And this is Christianity all across America. I'm not talking about apostates. I'm not talking about liberals. I'm talking about people in good churches who have committed to themselves to Christ, but do not understand what it means to be his follower, really. And they're living under a club system of programs and principles and rules. They're miserable, they're frustrated, or they're standing off in the corner judging everyone. And lost people don't even want to be a part of that. We have no message because we have no life. Who wants to join a bunch of miserable people and be judged by some of them? There's no fun in that. Jesus said, I came that you could have life filled with abundance, overflowing, full of goodness. That you, that you would just have joy unspeakable. Do you have it? Well, don't miss next week. Father, I pray that you would draw us near you this morning. Enable us to continue to contemplate these things so that we are ready to embrace the full answer that is in Jesus. I ask it in his precious name.